Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word. Now, Lord, help us to enter into this text with the help of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, use me as your mouthpiece, Lord, to communicate the emphasis of this passage to the hearts of your people. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We now come to the beginning of the second cycle of speeches in the book of Job. Job has just finished um, three chapters of crying out to God by faith, a faith that takes him to the brink of hope in a future resurrection where he will be restored to God and can finally have rest. But then as he looks at the circumstances of life, that hope is quickly dashed. He's overwhelmed still by what he's going through. So he's been fighting during this time in the ash heap, experiencing the suffering. He's been fighting to stand firm in what he knows to be true about God and true about God's ways or how God deals with man. But again, the realities of his circumstances, his present suffering are overwhelming and his hope just seems hopeless once again. And so now, Eliphaz speaks for the second time. Now if you remember, when Eliphaz spoke the first time, chapter four, he is actually very gentle in how he approaches Job. But there's something in his tone now that changes. He's aligning himself with his two other friends, Bildad and Zophar, and coming against Job and condemning Job because all three of them are united in their theological system of understanding how God works. And they consider themselves to be wise. They consider themselves to be full of understanding, to have the answers that are right. But they're caught up in their own self-serving moralistic theology that ends up being contrary to God. Their core message is this, remember this? Righteousness leads to blessing, wickedness leads to suffering. It's kind of a black and white approach to life. You do good things, good things are gonna happen to you. You do bad things, bad things are gonna happen to you. That seems to be the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man-made religion. But what's lacking in their theological system is any concept of grace. There's no room for a righteous person to suffer. It's a cold, mechanical view of God in life. And so now Eliphaz speaks once again to Job. And our chapter is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 16, where Eliphaz addresses Job's words. And then verses 17 through 35, 
where Eliphaz describes the fate of the wicked. So I'm trying to paint a, a big picture flyover understanding of, of what he's arguing for in this particular chapter. Now again, what's difficult for us is to hear what God calls bad counsel in a chapter like this and to seek an understanding of what God wants us to see in this text. To be able to sort through what's good and what's error. And we need to have minds that are discerning for that. But this morning, I would like to present to you what this text is actually driving at. And it might seem a little wordy to begin with, but it will make sense as we press on. What we have here are the warnings from man-made religion against the idea of redemptive suffering. You say, well, that's a mouthful, Pastor Rod. That's really, really clear. Well, that's why we have the second part. In other words, the belief that God's children might go through suffering, not because they have sinned, but because God is God and is seeking to further his redemptive plan through their suffering. That is redemptive suffering. As opposed to this mechanical, black and white view that basically says that if you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. Therefore, if you are suffering, it must be because of your sin. Okay? Now, this is one of the reasons, we've talked about this many times, why the Jews in particular reject Christianity, because they have no concept of a suffering Messiah. That a righteous man, a godly leader of the people, cannot, should not suffer. And so they reject that idea. But the same sentiment we hear as we listen to the world around us. I mean, here's just some that I thought of, right? Why would a loving God allow this innocent child to die? It's a tough question. But it's a question that is born out of this black and white kind of view. That this child is innocent, therefore it should never suffer. But all of us who've had children know, and you as a child know that as a child, you went through times of suffering. Or how about this one? Why would God allow so much suffering to take place in this world? We see it all around. And now, because of technology, we see it around the world. Why so much suffering? Of course, there's a biblical reason for that. The answer is sin. And sin fleshed out results in suffering. Sometimes, though, of course, it comes from natural disasters and things like that. Why does God allow evil men like Stalin or Hitler or others who would fit into that category to rule with such violence and cause so much suffering to take place? It's a good question. Because in the eyes of the world, evil men deserve to suffer. Righteous men deserve to be blessed. And yet, Many people who would be considered righteous or innocent in the world's eyes do suffer. And so today, much of society actually 
hates the gospel. They may not say that, but they hate the gospel because traditional religion, in other words, man's system of religion considers the universe to be moral and it's somewhat fluid. But whoever or whatever powers that might be in the universe reward good behavior and punish bad behavior. It's kind of like this, this unwritten code in the world. But friends, that is not necessarily what Scripture teaches. Now certainly Scripture says, in a general sense, you do good things, blessing will follow. You, you sow bad things, trouble's going to follow. That's a general principle, but that is not an exclusive reality. So Eliphaz is making a case for traditional man-made religion against Job's claim that one can be both a righteous man and also suffer. So now Eliphaz, like Bildad and Zophar, is committed to this moral system, and he's seeking now to persuade Job by issuing two warnings. Warning number one, Job you're not behaving like a wise man, so listen. And warning number two, Job, you are behaving more like a wicked man, so beware. And those will be the headings of these two sections. Now I want you to note the comparison of the wise man with that of the wicked man. Look at verse two. You see how he emphasizes there, brings up this idea of the wise man. But then also jump down to verse 18. Again, we have this discussion here of the wise man. And then in verse 20, we have the wicked man. And the whole section is describing what that wicked man looks like. And so there's this comparison going on. And friends, this is an age-old comparison among religions throughout the world. But the biblical definitions of wisdom and wicked don't necessarily correlate to the definitions of man-made traditional religion. But we do find some indication to it, for example, in Psalm 1. The whole point of Psalm 1 is ultimately saying that there is a righteous man and his name is Christ. And that is answered in chapter 2. But the idea in Psalm 1 is there's this righteous man and there's this wicked man. And the righteous man is like a tree that is planted that bears fruit, but the wicked man is like chaff which just blows in the wind. And then if we turn to the book of Proverbs, we see this idea of wickedness and, and wisdom once again. And here are just a couple of examples of it. There's lots of verses I could quote, but I'll give you a couple. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes, for the, for the uh, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So it's possible to think that you're wise in your own eyes, but you're not actually wise, which means that it's not really wisdom if you're being wise in your own eyes, right? Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Again, these are general principles. The point is, what we're looking at in Job, what we're looking at in the Psalms, what we're looking at in Proverbs is what's called wisdom literature, so this whole idea of, of what is wisdom and what is wickedness is throughout these texts. 
Now, as we come to our text today, what we have is someone who has a distorted theology challenging someone who has a healthy theology and claiming that the person with a healthy theology is not being wise in his words and is drifting toward wickedness by holding his healthy theology. And it's a faulty claim to be sure, but it is the claim that man-made traditional religion looks down its nose and accuses Christ-centered, Bible-believing Christians that they are guilty of. That, That we, who hold to the truth of God's word, are drifting toward wickedness because we are not in line with the wisdom of the world. It's twisted, isn't it? I mean, it's upside down, but this is what happens. So friends, it seems to be the pattern that those who hold the line by standing on God's truth are often viewed as conservatives, literalists, old-fashioned, well, you don't want to be called old-fashioned, or extremists. You people who believe the Bible, you're extremists. You're fundamentalists. Okay, whatever you want to call it, it's not going to change what we're going to believe because it's true. You understand the pressure that's going on. Job is being attacked for standing on what he knows to be true about God and his ways. So let's jump in now to this first section. Job, you're not behaving like a wise man at all, so listen. Now notice the the overwhelming use of speech language. I'll just highlight it here. In verse 3, you have the word talk and the word uh, word words. You have in verses 5 and 6, mouth, tongue, lips, testify. In verse 11 and 13, again, words. In other words, what's happening here is Eliphaz is is now challenging the words of Job. And he's saying, when you open your mouth, Job, you are speaking in a certain way. And we have, I think, five different ways that he's speaking that are really unfolded in this poetry. First of all, your words are empty words. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? He's saying, Job, the words that you've spoken in the ash heap to me, to Bildad, to Zophar are not the kind of words that reflect a man of wisdom. Instead, they're full of wind. They are worthless. They cannot do any good. They're like the east wind. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's the it's the Sirocco. It's the, the, the Kamsun, which is the wind that comes off of the desert, and it's violent, and it's hot, and it happens quickly. It's unexpected. And in fact, it's the same wind, if you remember, that came and consumed Job's children. So even the use of this example is somewhat cutting. 
And the fact that Job speaks too much from his belly is simply an accusation against Job that he speaks too much from his feelings and not from the seat of reason. Job, you're just spouting your feelings and you're not thinking. And as a result, your words are empty, they're unprofitable, and they do no good. Now, friends, there's no doubt that Job, in his grief, (laughs) was speaking from his feelings. That's what grief does. If you're ever interacting with someone who's going through grief, grief, they're they're probably going to have some feelings that are being expressed. That's all part of it. And his suffering had been tragic. His suffering had been overwhelming and sudden. Who would not be affected and express it with their feelings who's gone through something like Job has gone through? But what Eliphaz doesn't get is that although Job is wrestling with his feelings, he's seeking to anchor his feelings to what he knows to be true about God. This is what you, you, Scripture talks about, taking your thoughts captive. Not being carried away. It's right for us to have feelings. But those feelings need to be anchored to the truth. At least that's where we need to go, especially in grief. And sometimes it takes a while to land the plane there. And a good friend would know that. So these are empty words. They're also crafty words. Look at verses 4 through 6. But you're doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your mouth condemns you and not I. Your lips testify against you. Again, Job, you need to be very, very careful. Because what you've been saying is extremely dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that you are doing away with any fear of God. You don't care about God. You're not, you're not intimidated by him. And you're hindering any profitable theological reflection before God. Now, it's likely that Eliphaz is specifically uh, addressing Job concerning his brash boldness to stand before God by faith and to speak. And he's challenging his attitude and his action as being fearless before God. And this, when he opens his mouth before God, he's, he's spouting his complaints and he's voicing his struggle to understand. But friends, that's what we call a lament. But if we remember rightly, Job does fear God. That is the point. That is why he says, though he slay me, still will I hope in him. Job was fearing God, but he was also hoping in God based on what he knew about God and his character, that he is a just God. And he was rightly making his lament to God. Friends, hear this. It is a privilege that we all have when we don't understand what is going on or why it is going on to come to God with our emotions and cry out to him in a lament. That's the point of a lament. But the goal is to anchor our soul 
to what God says. So Eliphaz continues, because of your lack of fear and disrespect of your God, your words are crafty. They're the fruit of your sinful heart. Wow. The idea of crafty here is a cleverness that manipulates to one's own end. We would use it to describe someone who uses Scripture to support a sinful behavior. Let me give you a couple of examples. It's like those who claim that the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that caused their destruction was their lack of hospitality. Rather than what Scripture clearly says, that they were guilty of perverse sexual behavior. There's a deliberate twisting of God's word so that you are supporting a sinful lifestyle choice. Let me give you another example. Some who have taught that when women come to church, they should attend silently and leave the thinking to the men. You ever heard that before? Now, of course, such teaching and conclusions violate the actual teaching of Scripture. But when we come to Scripture and we take it and we twist it, we are crafty with it for our own selfish and manipulative purposes to suit our ends. That's the point. That is what Eliphaz is accusing Job of doing, of twisting things, of being crafty with his words. It's all coming out of the sin that is in his heart. He says, your mouth condemns you and your lips testify against you. Now, Job had, in fact, said something like that because he knows that even a blameless man standing before God would have his, his sin exposed. I mean, you know, how are we to stand before God? Well, that's how we began our service today, isn't it? Isaiah before a God, a thrice holy God. That doesn't mean, you know, holy father, holy son, holy... God. No, that's not... Thrice holy in the Old Testament is a literary device to say, this is the, the most holy you can be. And that's why Isaiah, the godly leader at that point in time, is standing before God and says, I'm undone. Even though his accounts with God were short. And he says, I'm, done, but I'm undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And not only that, I'm rubbing shoulders with people that are just like that. To stand before God exposes your sin. But let me remind you of what we're told at the beginning of Job that helps us understand how we ought to approach this. Job 1.22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, friends, it's important to see here this accusation. Empty words, crafty words, but these are not necessarily true. Third, arrogant words. Arrogant words. Here we have an attack that Eliphaz has on Job to expose Job's words as arrogant. He uses six rhetorical questions which are all to be answered in the negative. Are you the first man who was born? No. Were you brought forth before the hills? No. Have you listened to the counsel of God? No. 
I mean, this is Eliphaz answering the question here, right? Do you limit the wisdom to, uh, wisdom to yourself? No. What do you know that we don't know? Nothing. What do you understand that is not clear to us? Nothing. So Eliphaz is confronting Job as one who believes that he is wiser than his friends, not only wiser than his friends, but wiser than the gray-haired elders and even wiser than God. Who do you think that you are to speak in such a way? You're arrogant. You're outnumbered. And you're wrong. In today's vernacular, you're on the wrong side of history, buddy. You're arrogant. Empty words, crafty words, arrogant words, unthankful words. Look, Job, we came to you with words of comfort. We came gently to you and have been speaking the truth, so why are you not listening to our counsel and wisdom? Instead, your heart carries you away so that you are turning against God and you say such awful things. This is verses 11 through 13. Now, friends, there's no doubt that, that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar came to Job with intentions of bringing counsel and comfort in his grief. But again, what they failed to realize is that Job isn't so much rejecting them as friends. What he is rejecting is their system of theology, the counsel, and the wisdom that they are offering him at this point in time because it is distorted, it's harmful, and it's unhelpful. He's thankful for their presence, but he's not thankful for their counsel and wisdom. He's saying righteous people do suffer innocently, and I'm an example of that. But they're saying, your words then do not express thankfulness for us coming. And then the last section here, verses 14 through 16, we have confused words. Eliphaz thinks that Job has overreacted in his accusation toward God instead of accepting that all are to some degree unrighteous and therefore deserving some amount of punishment. Job has insisted unreasonably that he is somehow perfectly innocent. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Is what Eliphaz said earlier in chapter 4. Now, as I've said earlier, not everything that Eliphaz says is wrong. But his view of God's ways is faulty. Much of what he has to say about God is right, except his distorted view of aspects of God and his approach to suffering. He has a, a wrong view of Job, a wrong view of sin, and a wrong view of God's punishment. But that view comes with a cold and rigid approach to understanding God in his ways. There's no room for grace. Now, friends... We might point to all sorts of different world religions with their works-based system of somehow getting back to God and being reconciled to him, very mechanical ways that that would happen. But the reality is that these issues are often closer to home. 
The kinds of things that come up when we're talking to people who are under the umbrella of Christianity, who have an orthodox view of Christ, of, uh, of God, of Christianity, but who unfortunately have been deceived or uh, are either uh, allowing the wisdom of the world to kind of shift their thinking, to state things that are not true, or to embrace beliefs that are contrary to the word of God. And friends, this crops up in the church. This crops up among those who are under the umbrella of Christianity. And when you as a follower stand on God's word, you seek to bring clarity to something that's being said, you end up then being the object of offense. Because you're simply saying, but, but what you're saying is not what Scripture is actually saying. But those who are embracing it now see you as being arrogant and unreasonable and a know-it-all. You see where this is going? But all you're doing is simply trying to hold the line of Scripture. You're simply trying to say, this is what the gospel is. This is who God is. But to them, you're unreasonable, you're arrogant, you're full of empty talk. And friends, this is, this is a challenge for us. And this is going to happen more and more. As, as society begins to say things and, and kind of paint people into a corner because they don't like their beliefs, sorry, the beliefs of the church, the church then is going to somehow either stand firm and face the onslaught of accusation or it's going to capitulate, which means that you're going, to be, you're going to be interacting with people that are under the umbrella of Christ who have capitulated and you're trying to stand true. Let me, let me give you an example. I just read something this morning. A person put a, a Facebook post up. I don't know if you've ever read the... the uh, comic strip by, by Adam, but it's kind of a Christian comic strip. And the guy basically went through this, this argument, two people talking about, um, about um, slavery and how horrible the slavery was and how you know, innocent people were treated horribly, blah, 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 blah. And the person was like, yeah, it's terrible, it's awful. And then the person said, yeah, and isn't it, isn't it, isn't it just as sad that there are these innocents in the womb who are being treated the same way, who have no rights. And, and basically the comparison was, look, you, you think that slavery's bad, and you're fighting for that, but you're not fighting for, you know, uh, fighting a battle against abortion. And a person posted underneath that, and I, I'm not quoting it, but I'm giving you the sense of this. How dare you compare a race of people to a cluster of cells? That is Racism. This is what they're saying. That is racism to do that. Well, Christians are not saying this is a cluster of cells. They're saying that once conception happens, there is life. This is a human being, and that human being has just as much value and is just as much a human being as anyone who was sold in slavery. But to hold that position, according to this person, is racist. And no one wants to be called a racist. <laughs> and so what happens to Christians? Well, okay, shrink back a little bit. I don't want to be offensive. You know, we want to be in this world, and you know, we want to have an impact, so we're going to back off. And yet God has called us to hold on 
to the gospel, hold on to his truth, to live out of that truth. But in doing so, guess what? The voices will be sounded against you and me. And here's Job holding the line of what he knows to be true about God and his ways. And even his friends now are turning on him and saying, Job, you're not being a wise man. In fact, if anything, you are more like a wicked man. You see where this is going? So let's, let's move from this to the next section, to, to be outside the boundaries of the lineage of wisdom is to be outside of true knowledge itself and ultimately against God. That's what Eliphaz is saying here. If you're not embracing our truth, but you're embracing your truth, you're not truly embracing God's truth. Now, Job, you're behaving more like a wicked man, so beware. And we begin now with this, these three verses that really are laying the basis of his argument for the next section, but it's also kind of a, a hinge from where we've been to where we're going to go. So I'll call this the foundation of knowledge, verse 17 through 19. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare that wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone a land was given, and no stranger passed among them. So Eliphaz now echoes what his friend Bildad has already said to Job in chapter 8 and verse 8. There, Bildad says this, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers searched out. In his view, old folks are wise folks. And any old folk here can say amen to that, right? There's certainly life, there's experience, but when it comes to wisdom literature, the, the old folks, the elderly, the, the gray hairs are the ones who have wisdom. And so he's strengthening his case now by arguing for their counsel. Now once again, as Eliphaz did with his first speech, he, he appeals to what he has seen. If you remember back then, it was a dream or a vision that he was having. And that was the foundation for his argument. Now, he repeats that. But this time, it's not so much a vision, but it's his own personal experience. This is what I've seen. This is what I've observed. This is what I know to be true, simply by observation. And so he reveals for us now two sources of knowledge. The first one is what, what he sees, and the second one is what um, men say or men decree. So we have personal experience and we have tradition. And so Eliphaz now is identifying himself, conveniently so, as one of the long line of wise men, teachers and fathers who have been respected through the ages, who've passed down their wisdom from generation to generation. And so Eliphaz is now looking down his nose at Job as one whose words do not reflect the wisdom of the ages. Job, you're behaving more like a wicked man, so you need to beware. He's saying, Job, you're headed in a very, very serious direction. Let me, let me remind you what happens to the wicked. And so he now goes into this, this talk now to the rest of the chapter about the wicked man. First of all, he identifies the distress of the wicked men. They are so distressed. First of all, they're distressed uh, in their torment. They writhe with pain. 
They're tormented through life. And they might appear like they're having a great time, but wicked men are writhing. They're tormented with the life that they're living. They're in terror. Their ears are full of dreadful sounds awaiting the destroyer. So the torment is not just physical, it's more mental and spiritual. The wicked are hearing voices. And it's bringing panic. It's bringing fear. Now, again, a wicked person is like, you know, I go do my wickedness. But at the same time, they're, 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 waiting, they're waiting for judgment to come. The destroyer, likely a demon power, is coming to get them. Now, Job has said some similar things about himself. He says in Job 3.25, as he's lamenting, for the thing I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. It's like, I, I, I fear this and this, this is coming, this is heavy. But then there is a trajectory. In other words, because they're living this life of torment and terror, there is a trajectory as they're looking ahead at life. All they realize, all they think is that they are already dead. They're dead men walking, so to speak. They're living on borrowed time. And they cannot come back from the darkness. They are men marked for violent death. I'm just pulling some of the statements that are in these verses here. They live in panic, wandering and waiting for death to come. So they go through life in terror and torment, always looking over their shoulder for death and darkness to catch them. What a way to live. What a horrible way to exist. But this is the distress of the wicked man. But not only do we have that, we're given the reason why. And notice the reason why this is given to us in verses 25 and 26, because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. And so we have here a picture of a soldier who's running defiantly against God with this thick shield, sticking his neck out in defiance. It's quite a picture. This is who the wicked are. This is why they are distressed, because of how they're running against God. And no one can stick his neck out in defiance against God and survive. No shield will provide a guilty man with protection against God. Now remember, these are Eliphaz's words that he's giving to Job. We would agree that this is true. This, is, this picture is a true statement about the wicked. But he's saying, and Job, you are the guilty man. <laughs> You're the one who's running after God with defiance. You're rejecting his system of theology. In other words, Eliphaz's system of theology that is rooted in the cold tradition of the wise. If you reject that, you're defying God. So there's the distress of the wicked, but then there's also the doom of the wicked, and we clear out the rest of the chapter by looking at this. First of all, what the wicked man has done, verse 27, because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. Just the, the, the parallel there is this word fat. I like how one commentator describes the wicked man here, I think we might be able to relate to it. He has the double chin and heavy belly of a rich man who has indulged himself in too many donuts. 
He thinks he's a warrior, but in fact, his self-indulgence has weakened him. Just as one obese man is in no physical condition for a fight, so a selfish man is in no moral condition for a contest with God. It's pretty powerful. He sought to fatten himself. But what the wicked man now can expect. And here we have this rest of the text, really four statements that kind of summarize it. First of all, eventual ruin. However prosperous he may be, his prosperity won't last. His home will be desolate and in ruins, just like Job, who, because of his sin, is now living in an ash heap. His riches will not last, just like Job, He will become bankrupt because of his wickedness. Again, Eliphaz is saying this, remember, he's saying it to Job. And so he's he's trying to hammer Job with this, right? He's on a one-way street to darkness. Any roots of life that might keep him clinging to this world will be burned up. And his words will be his ruin. Now, all of these statements in some way, shape, or form are pointing back to Job's circumstances and the words that he has spoken to his friends. Nothing like gathering what you said and having it being thrown back in your face. He's saying these are words of warning to Job that he is on the brink of wickedness by rejecting the gentle and wise counsel of his friends. Eventual ruin, eventual emptiness. If the wicked man trusts in emptiness, in other words, idolatry, vanity, anything but God, then emptiness will be his payment. No matter how fruitful he looks in the early days of his prosperity, he will not actually bear fruit. This is a warning. Job, no matter how prosperous you were in the early days, The reason you're suffering is because you are a wicked man. You get that? Instead, he'll be like a vine that sheds its grape before they ripen. Or like an olive tree whose whose blossom blows away and never becomes fruitful. Again, there's all the signs of fruitfulness, then boom, it disappears. That's what the wicked man looks like. And then there's eventual barrenness. Verse 34 and 35. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tent of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb prepares deceit. In other words, his his company of friends who are full of bribery and deceit will prove to be barren. And like Psalm 1 indicates, the ungodly, the wicked, will not stand in the judgment, will be be judged and consumed by the fire of God's justice. They will perish. And of course, ultimately, that means eventual judgment. No one reaps trouble without first sowing trouble. That's what Eliphaz is saying here. And all the evil, deceitful, selfish sowing of the wicked will result in trouble of the worst sort. Wouldn't you like to invite Eliphaz to your home when you're going through suffering? 
Now, friends, we're not done yet. We still have the need now to wrestle back through this text and think through what is the point of Eliphaz's speech? What is he trying to get Job to see? How can that be helpful to us? And I would suggest to you, first of all, we need to ask the question, whose words are really empty? Is it Job's words? Or are they the words of Eliphaz and his friends? And secondly, and we'll tease this out a little bit more, are we intimidated by those who place themselves on a moral high ground against us? Because that is what Eliphaz and his friends are doing. They're placing themselves above Job and saying they're, they're more morally right than Job. And there's this pressure now underneath that moral high ground. And in today's world, it flushes out with things like the statements like this. That thinking, the thinking that you believe, is so old-fashioned. You know, as they're looking down their nose at you. You'll be on the wrong side of history. Oh, no. Jesus was loving and accepting of all. So shouldn't you be? Even Paul says that we're to be all things to all men. Now, these are statements that are made while society's moral high ground looks down on biblical Christianity. Now, just just take each one and just think it through a little bit. Just because something has been true in the past, even in the distant past, doesn't mean that it's wrong. Being old-fashioned isn't a sin. Especially when it is right. Is it old-fashioned to believe that murder or rape is wrong? Is that old-fashioned? Well, people believed it years ago. Does that mean it's wrong? Of course not. Why? Because it is right to believe that murder and rape is wrong. Is it old-fashioned to be chivalrous and to consider the health and well-being of women and children above yourself? I remember years ago when I came to the United States and I was, went to Michigan and I went to a public school and we had a, a class. I can't remember what it was called. It was you know, something about living in the culture or something like that. And they had this this exercise, if you were on the Titanic and you had a lifeboat, you know, who, who should go in the lifeboat? And you had to figure out, you know, should it be a doctor, should it be a lawyer? And it was like, no, lawyer's there. And then, you know, a politician, should it be a mother, you know, whatever. And I brought it home, and I'm trying to work on this. I, have, I think the women should be on there and probably the children. And there might be, an, might be one guy who might be strong and can make sure they get away to safety. But those answers were wrong. Because you had to measure the value of each person's contribution to society. Hey, listen, my dad was furious when, when he saw what I was doing. It's not wrong to be chivalrous. It's not wrong to care about women and children and prioritizing them, and as a man in particular, to make sure that you are doing what you can to make sure they're safe. Is it old-fashioned to forgive people when they've wronged you? You get the point, right? Being old-fashioned is not wrong if it's right. (laughs) 
Secondly, will you, will you actually be on the wrong side of history? Whatever that means. That statement's come up in the past I don't know, five or so years. But friends, it's simply an intimidation tactic that's seeking to bully you, to abandon your way of thinking, and to embrace someone else's view for fear that ultimately the world will see you as wrong. I mean, you, you don't. You wouldn't want to have been in Hitler's army, would you? No. But I know that there were people in Hitler's army who were there because if they didn't go in Hitler's army, their wife would be taken, their kids would be taken away from them. Simplify the issue. But the point is this. Who determines who's on the wrong side of history? Oh, if it's the world who is against God, that shakes their fist against God, of course, they're going to determine that the Christians are going to be on the wrong side of history. Why? Because they're not fashioned and shaped by the truth of God's word. That is not what fuels and fashions their ideology. What fuels and fashions their ideology doesn't come from outside of them. It comes from inside of them, their own desires. That's what Scripture says. And that will fashion and shape what is right and true. So the world will ultimately shake its fist at God and Christ and the gospel. But hear this, the God, the creator of the universe, will be the final judge. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that history. How about the third one? Jesus was a loving, he was loving and acceptable to all. And it's true. He loves sinners. That's what he came to do is to preach the gospel of repentance to them. He healed their bodies. He delivered many from the bondages of demons. Yet only those who would believe would be saved. Let me say that again. Only those who would believe would be saved. His gospel wasn't a blanket gospel that meant that everyone was saved. It's an exclusive gospel that says only those who believe will be saved. Yet Jesus loved on people who were sinners. In fact, most of the people we come in contact with in the gospels that Jesus encounters with are people who are great sinners that he had compassion for and that he moved toward and that in his discussion exposed their sinfulness. Some rejected him, like the the rich young ruler, and some, like the woman at the well, goes around telling everyone, you gotta, you got to meet this guy that I met. And so we are to love others as Christ did, to be gracious, kind, and merciful, and, and, and hopeful of, of even the worst of sinners. But we're also to reflect the gospel in its completeness that says, unless, unless you believe, your end is destruction. And that those who are saved are those who believe and embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. So certainly, Jesus is loving and accepting of all but there were ultimately conditions on the ultimate residence of all those people. 
based on belief. Let's not forget that many of the encounters that Jesus had, (laughs) yes, was with sinners, but it was with the religious elite who had their own distorted religion that they were going to hold to and they were going to fight for, and they were the ones the hardest not to expose. Jesus did a great job exposing it, but they were the ones who typically would not believe. What about this last one? Doesn't Paul say that we're to be all things to all men? Yes, he does, but it means something completely different than what most people use it to mean. When Paul talks about being all things to all men, he's simply saying that when going into a different culture and context, that he would make it a point to adjust his freedom in Christ and to conform to that culture where it did not violate Scripture so that he would not offend and lose the opportunity to preach the gospel. He's not saying, well, if you're going to reach... You know, those who are drug addicts, well, you've got to become a drug addict so you can hang out with them and say, dude, have you thought about Christ? I mean, you don't have to be intoxicated with drugs to connect with someone. See, this is the kind of stuff that happens. Oh, this is thrown out there, become all things to all men. That's not how Paul used it. He simply wants to make sure he's adjusting in every way possible so as not to be offensive in that culture. It's not carte blanche to act and to behave and accept the beliefs and practices of all. Now, I I went through those because I simply wanted to say, these are voices, and there's many more, but they're voices that are speaking against biblical Christianity, arguments that are being used that are, are, are causing Christians then to say, well, what should I do with that? And here Job is experiencing the same thing from his own friends. And yet he's saying, I'm going to stand on what I know to be true about God and his ways. So let's just, as we bring things to a close, I want to just have some concluding thoughts here. And I just want to remind you of of this this issue, and that is this. The the, the doctrine of redemptive suffering is at odds with the doctrine of of retribution. Redemptive suffering, of course, Uh, Or I said, the doctrine of retribution teaches that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. But it's that cold, mechanical, this is the only options you have. The doctrine of redemptive suffering teaches that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. That's Ephesians 1.6. At trials, tragedy, suffering, and hardship face the believer, not necessarily because of their sin, but because God is God and is working his plan through their suffering. That righteous people can suffering, and not because of their sinfulness, but simply because God is working his plan. And through that suffering, he's accomplishing his purposes. And at times, Christians are vehicles through which God is working to to maybe get his gospel to someone that they wouldn't normally get it to. So now as we reflect on Job 15, what is it that we need? I want to just highlight three things. First of all, we need grace in the face of empty words. The teaching of Job's friends, no matter how well intended, lacks any form of grace. It's a cold, mechanical, traditional 
theology. And it breeds fear. It breeds hopelessness. It it breeds despair. And without grace, God's kindness, his mercy, and forgiveness, without that, man is, is left abandoned, alone, with simply a determined fate. You're stuck. And the teaching which Job is holding onto recognizes that sin is the issue. That's what Job had said in the last few chapters. But that God's grace enters into that hopeless theology in an undeserved way. That's what grace is. It's undeserved. There's nothing you've done to deserve it. It goes against the grain of man's thinking. You don't deserve this kindness from God, but that's exactly what God has done. He's broken into the world, into the world of sinfulness, and he's brought forgiveness and restoration and hope. And friends, it's true. Job doesn't deserve God's kindness. You and I don't deserve God's breaking through the sinfulness of mankind and providing a way of reconciliation through the cross. But he has broken through. And he does provide a way. And he will be reconciled to those who are willing to believe him. And friends, we need to be reminded of grace. Secondly, we need perseverance in the face of empty words. Perseverance is what takes place on the other side of the cross. We've become a believer. Now we are living our life for God's glory, and and we're facing all sorts of difficulties and trials, right? We're in this new life with him. We're welcomed into his family, and it's a life that is fueled by grace to persevere through the ups and downs of life. John Bunyan skillfully illustrates this in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, and I want to just kind of bring this illustration from chapter five of that book. Christian, who's the main character, is with Interpreter, another character he runs into. Interpreter's job is to teach Christian uh, truths that he will need for his journey of faith. And so Interpreter shows Christian a fire that is, that is taking place against a wall. And there's a man who's going over to the fire with water trying to put the fire out. That's what you do. If it's a fire, you get water, you pour water, or you get fire, you get water and you pour that onto the fire, seeking to put it out. But the fire doesn't go out. And not, not only go out, the fire burned higher and hotter. And so Christian asks interpreter, what does this mean? And interpreter explains that the fire is the work of grace that God produces in the heart. The grace of trust in Christ and love for him. But the devil's constantly trying to put out this fire by pouring on it the water of temptation and worries and trials. And then interpreter wanting to show Christian how the fire not only kept burning but kept burning hotter and higher takes Christian around the back of the wall where he sees a man who was pouring oil into the fire from behind. 
And so Christian asks again, what does this mean? And interpreter answers, this is Christ who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding that the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. So if, we, if all we see is the flame of, of uh, our faith and the water of the devil pouring it out, we can easily despair and we can easily give up. And that's why it's crucial, friends, to see what Jesus is doing. Now and for the rest of your life, he will continue to pour into your flame all the oil you need, not just so your faith continues, but so it burns higher and hotter. And friends, the point here is this. We talked about the need for grace, but that grace then continues on and helps you persevere through life when the trial is raging before you, God's fuel of grace helps you to persevere. So we need to see what Jesus is doing, to trust what Jesus is doing, that he won't let your flame go out. As we sang today, he will never let you go. And finally, this is important for us, but we need the church. You and I are, are living in a society where the voices of the world are a barrage to us. And sometimes those voices are coming from within the church. <laughs> and what we need is for the church to be the place where we can have those questions and those struggles answered. So what we need are pastors and leaders and Sunday school teachers and parents to work hard at exposing error and to teach truth, to identify a, a ideas running through the wisdom of the world that are finding their home in the church. And Paul calls Timothy, his son in the faith, and every other subsequent pastor and church leader to guard the gospel entrusted to them. And to do that without being ashamed and to entrust that gospel to other men who will be able to entrust it to other faithful men, so on and so on and so on. So the church must be a place where followers of Christ can go to find help, wisdom, and guidance about who they are in Christ, about what God's word truly says, and about what God's word says about their walk with him. In that sense, we're just like Job. And this constant barrage of voices seeks to move us from standing firm on God's truth and embracing the ideas of the world. Lord, help us just to contemplate, Lord, the, the pressure of society that more and more seeks to ridicule what true biblical Christianity looks like. They want to twist it. They want to adjust it. 
so that there can be a, a Christianity that is acceptable and comfortable and accepting of everyone no matter what their sinful passions might be. And yet, Lord, we who know what the truth is, we who know who you are in your character and what you expect of those who are your followers, we stand on your truth. And Lord, we have to do so in such a way that we're honest with society, but we're not intimidated. And society might say we're going to be on the wrong side of history. But Lord, the, the most important question for us is in that day when God is the judge and we are standing before him, will he receive us because we've put our faith and trust in him? Or will he reject us because we have rejected him? We don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So Lord, give us perspective, give us awareness, give us confidence that as we live our lives for your glory, that what we know to be true about who you are is what we need to stand on. Even when we don't have all the answers, to nestle ourselves into who you are. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you will call us home. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.